A lot of people talk about neoliberalism as a terrible thing. And when they talk about it, they think that it, it's a, an idea that includes people like Milton Friedman, the communist leader Deng Xiaoping, thinker like Friedrich Hayek, social democratic leader like Tony Blair of the United Kingdom, Margaret Thatcher of the United Kingdom, and all sorts of cultural phenomena. Now, a lot of things are put into this heading and is it really a useful term? How should we understand it? How should we understand the criticisms that are leveled against it? That is the topic we want to explore today. What is neoliberalism? How has it become such a bogeyman for a lot of people? It's something that is being savaged and attacked from all sorts of directions. So we're going to talk about how this topic has gained a lot of currency and prominence in the last few years, particularly a number of people have been pushing it. So um, we're going to unpack this a bit. So who are some of the people talking about neoliberalism and bashing it? Just to give you a few of the names, some of them might not be familiar, some of them might. And uh, we so I'll give you one of the, the individuals who had a, a sort of viral article in 2016. His name is George Monviot. He's a British intellectual journalist. He's really prominent in the UK and uh, his article went really widestream, uh, uh, widely read uh, around the time. And in the thrust of that article in The Guardian is that neoliberalism is the root of all the problems you can imagine from people being sad and unhappy in their lives to having drug problems, to economic collapse, to the breakdown of social relationships, to recessions, to even ecological problems. So you name a problem and it's the, the root of that he thinks is this thing called neoliberalism. Another person who has been pushing this is Naomi Klein, who's a Canadian uh, journalist, intellectual. She's, I think, better known in the US, at least, than George Monbiot. And, and her view is very similar, that neoliberalism is the problem. She points at it uh, as the source for um, pushing societies towards what she regards as the wrong kind of organization. And then there are some intellectuals, one of them that Nikos pointed out is, uh, are you back with us, Nikos? Let's just see. We're gonna test your connection. Okay, not quite yet, but we'll bring you in as soon as we can. So the other person that uh, Nikos was uh, gonna introduce us to is an, a scholar by the name of David Harvey, who's very much in the, in the sort of progressive camp. And he is someone who's written a number of books, one of them centered on this idea of neoliberalism being a problem. And finally, just to, to sort of situate where this issue is and who are the, some of the, the critics of neoliberalism before we dive into what they think it is, there are people in the so-called illiberal right or dissident right, um, conservatives who have moved away from traditional views in the uh, conservative camp, and they regard neoliberalism as something that they want to move away from. So there, there are people from all parts of the intellectual tribal landscape who regard neoliberalism as a significant problem. So let's, let me throw it back to you now that you're back. Tell us, what do you make of this? What, what got you, what triggered you to, to want to talk about this and, and unpack it a bit? So in my years in academia, neoliberals would come up time and again as the main characteristic of the world that we live in. So mostly they wouldn't use the term capitalism. They would use the term neoliberalism, mostly leftist academics. But there were three problems. The first was that neoliberalism was never actually defined. 
And there were some researchers who actually did a quantitative research in all the journal articles that would refer to the term neoliberalism. And there were very few, if any, that would bother defining. That's the first problem. So we have a concept, we have a term that is not, we don't know what it means. And sometimes you would see something even worse, that the definition would be uh, cyclical. What is neoliberalism? Neoliberalism is the application of neoliberal policies by people with neoliberal beliefs, which of course is, is not good at all as a definition. That was the first problem. A second problem is there were no people out there who self-identify as neoliberals. So we know there are people who identify as libertarians. There are people who identify as classical liberals. There are people who identify as radicals for capitalism. But there was no one out there, or almost no one, who identified as neoliberal. So how can you have a concept where you used to describe people that no one actually uses this concept for themselves? This is something quite unusual. And the third problem was that neoliberalism was used to cover such a vast diversity of phenomena and of people that it's questionable what is its use. So as we said in the opening, if you have a term that can define from a communist dictator to Margaret Thatcher, or it can define the education in the UK, which is supposedly neoliberal, although it's run by the state, or I've even seen an analysis in The Guardian that says that the film La La Land is neoliberal. Why? Because the protagonists at the end, they choose to follow their dream career rather than their love. And apparently this is a symptom of neoliberalism. So if you have such a diverse area of people and ideas, does this concept actually is useful in any way in order to understand the world? Or is it used as a stromer? Or is it used as a boogeyman in order to warn people that, look, whatever we signify as neoliberal, which is mostly anything that has to do with the ideas of freedom or with the ideas of capitalism, is something that is bad, is something that is wrong, and is something that should be considered the main, the main reason behind any problem that society is facing, from climate change to inequality to loneliness. So if you feel lonely, Friedrich Hayek and uh, Milton Friedman has something to do with it, apparently. I'm not making this up. This is what George Monbiot has put in one of his articles on neoliberalism. So let's talk a bit about the origin of this. So I, in my reading, I, I don't think I have read quite as much as you have. So maybe you can fill in some of the gaps here. In my reading is that there is, there were people who thought of themselves as neoliberal at some point in time. It's not clear that any of them are around anymore that, or that they think of themselves in this term or that they find the term useful. What's the, what do you understand the origin of this term to be in the best case, the, the, the most so, validated evidence the, for it? The best case we can make is that at some point in the late 30s, there are some people in Germany who are trying to find a third way between socialism and capitalism, between the free market, the, 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 the free market of classical liberalism and the, the state control economy. They are the people who later would be known as ordo liberals. They were the people who were behind the economic development of West Germany after the Second World War. So among them was a guy, an economist and a sociologist called Alexander Rustov, who described neoliberalism as 
a, in a, a system where there is a welfare state, the state has a role in the economy, but has a smaller role in the economy. So the idea was on the one hand, we have an uh, FDR type of state intervention. On the other hand, we have the free market, the free economy, the quote, uh, unregulated and unrestrained capitalism, and we need to find the third way. So notice that from the beginning, neoliberalism is a deviation from radical capitalism or free market capitalism or a libertarianism or however different people want to call it. But it's a deviation from it. So rather than being market fundamentalism, which is what George Monbiot calls it, it's actually the opposite. It is an effort to tame the market and to put it under the control of the state. So at the end of the day, what we would call neoliberal, one might say has more things in common with a form of social democracy where this, the market is relatively free, rather than with free market capitalism, rather than with what Ayn Rand would describe as the division between the state and the economy. So rather than being free market unleashed, neoliberalism is the free market trying to be used under a system which is not miles away from some central planners who know better, but they also understand some economics. So they leave some space for the market to operate and to produce the goods, but always under the auspices of the state. So uh, earlier you were saying that you thought this was a straw man or it's a boogeyman. So those are metaphors. And I, I think it'd be useful to unpack a bit and make the case that this is not a useful term and that in fact, it's clouding thinking rather than helping thinking, helping us think about what's going on in society. And here I want to connect it to the way Ayn Rand approaches issues like this. So she, one of the things that is distinctive in her thinking is that she doesn't just take ideas from the culture and pick them and accept them uncritically and then just run with them. She's in a, in a very deep way first-handed. And one of the questions she's always asking is, is this a valid concept? Is this a term that is useful for thinking or not? What are the facts that give rise to the need for this idea? And so she has a category of this concept is not valid. And that's a very unusual perspective in the intellectual world because my experience is intellectuals, well, here's a term, uh, someone coined the term, I don't know why they coined it. Maybe I think it's okay, maybe not. I have some tweaks to it, but let's use it and we'll run with that. There's very rarely the perspective of questioning whether some concept is truly valid, really grounded in facts and so on. And it's, this is a, I find it super helpful adopting this methodology from in just being critical anytime you see this is the way i hold it i don't think she would put it quite this way but my rule of thumb is when i see a, a new term like this pop up or any term actually that i don't i've not encountered firsthand my attitude is it's it's guilty until proven innocent why do i need this term well how is it going to help me think about what's going on and it, the more i've been reading about this topic since we started discussing uh, having a conversation about it the more I'm convinced that it's not really helpful and it, it's not something that anyone should try to reclaim. Uh, but there, so the, in a certain way, I think you're right that it's a straw man. It, it, if that means not taking the strongest case for something 
uh, or, or trying to create a weak version of something in order to, to disparage it or, or to knock it down. So I, I think there's aspects of it that are there, but I wonder if it's worse than that. I wonder if it's a calculated way of obscuring what the real issues are and how to better think about what's going on. And here, I, I think it's useful to say there, I wanna distinguish two things. One, you may, we've been talking a bit about George Monbiot and in the show notes, we should include a link to this article that you, you told me about from 2016. This is, you said it went viral. It got a lot of attention on social media. It's perhaps and, the and most the, read article in terms of the comments it has uh, that I've ever seen in The Guardian. Okay, and The Guardian is a major serious publication in the UK. It's, it's, one, it's not quite the, the New York Times equivalent, but it's very close to that intellectually in the way people mm -hmm. respect it. And George Monbiot, as much as if you read some of his stuff, he, he can come across, in my view, as, as a, a kook, a conspiracy, but he has, is, unfortunately, he's well-respected intellectually in the UK. He has a long and uh, illustrious career. So there's a way in which you can look at this and say, this is a joke. I mean, this is, it, it has the, some of his argument has the feel of conspiracy thinking or conspiracy fantasies about just the way he describes things in this, this uh, definitely that aspect of it. But I want to distinguish that from what is it that people who talk about this who are a little more credible are trying to point to, and you are characterizing it as it's sort of a third way between a, a completely free society and a, a very a holy or mostly socialist society, sort of navigating this middle path. Uh, and does that even need a new name? <laughs> That's the question I have for you. Why is there a need for a name for that? If it, the, the apt term for this is it's a mixed economy and maybe it's more mixed in one direction than another. And, and that is that leaves you to, with the, the uh, clarity of saying, well, what are the elements in it and how do you distinguish them and which ones are active, which ones are more dominant, which ones are being supported or, or weakened? And I think this is really uh, what it's trying to obscure. And I think part of what's revealing about the, that there's a certain motivation behind this is to look at some of the criticisms that arise when people target neoliberalism. And just, I wanna mention just in passing before we dive into this, I was reading various articles in preparation for today's conversation. And the one, I think it was published two days ago in the Atlantic. Uh, and the, the gist of this article is the wreckage of neoliberalism. So what we're living through today, and you name every person, so it's, it's sort of like George Monbiot's article from six years ago or seven years ago, but just repackaged for today in the US. Look at the wasteland of the Midwest. Look at all these people who are dying of drug overdoses. What's the source of that? It's neoliberalism. So, so it's, 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 it, it, I don't think it's a good faith effort to understand what some of these problems are. Uh, but let me throw it back to you. So maybe walk us through a little of what are some of the claims being made and what what do you understand as the assumptions behind these claims so one of the claims is that neoliberal first of all is a class war project what does this mean it means it's a plan and that's why i believe we're in conspiracy theory territory a plan by whom it's a plan by the rich capitalists via institutions, think tanks, networks, the media, to discipline and to defeat the left. So they bring examples such as Margaret Thatcher's war against the trade unions without any context on 
what was the essence of that quote war. Or they bring examples such as quote deregulation without telling us what type of deregulation are you talking about? Or the dismantling of the safety net. What dismantling of safety net, where? So they use these vague threatening sound terms to tell us that there has been a conscious effort by capitalists to weaken as much as possible organized labor, to weaken as much as possible the left, and to weaken as much as possible the resistance that was the welfare state, which supposedly has been evaporating for 30, 40 years now to the accumulation of their wealth. So particularly if you read people like David Harvey, neoliberalism is a conscious project, but it gets worse because it's one thing we can say that we are, have a conscious project to, for uh, the triumph of, of our ideas. Of course, we don't control politicians, but having a conscious project is not a problem. It gets even worse though, because this conscious project of class war of the rich against the poor doesn't stop at anything. And actually, it either manufactures, or if it doesn't manufacture them, it takes advantage of crisis in order to impose these reforms. This is the very famous shock doctrine by Naomi Klein. It was a book written around 2008, which says that almost every dictatorship in Latin America, the Iraqi war, uh, or the or the, the Katrina hurricane in the US, all these things were either orchestrated or they were used for the shock doctrine to take place, which is for politicians to find an excuse to impose shock and all uh, market reforms. Of course, again, if we try to find uh, any evidence for that, we won't find any. And I would even claim that empirically, sometimes we see the worst, the opposite that whenever there is a crisis, it is the state that is expanding its intervention in our lives. And the obvious example, of course, was the pandemic. But for the proponents of this idea, it's a conscious political project. And some of its results are the widening of inequalities. So you will never hear these people talk about how billions of people escaped extreme poverty in the developing world. But they will talk about the growth of inequalities. They will also talk about the, how to put it, the, the, the defeat of democracy. So the idea was to give the example of Greece. During the financial crisis, the Greeks were voting to have a, more of a largesse welfare state. But the markets, quote, imposed austerity. The markets imposed austerity means that they wouldn't lend money to Greece if they thought that they would never get them back. But for the conspiracy theories behind the quote neoliberalist boogeyman project, this is all a conscious effort of the big capital to undermine democracy. So rising inequality, undermining democracy, and creating social ills from obesity to loneliness to climate change. If you go and read that George Monbiot article, you will see that somehow all these things are related to neoliberalism. So, this is a conspiracy theory, but not even a good one because there is not even a very stable starting point on some having a basis on reality. Of course, some would say that, wait a minute, didn't we see in the 80s that there was this power duo of Reagan and Thatcher, and these are the people who created the world that today we live in. 
I would challenge that these people created the world that we live in, but let me give you uh, the space, Elan, to comment on any of these things. Yeah, I want to come while back you to you. Let me adjust my camera a bit. I'll be here. Yeah, sure. No, I, I think that I want to come back to Reagan and Thatcher because I, I think there's something interesting there that's being obscured by having a term like neoliberalism. But just to, to bring out a point from the kinds of criticisms that you've mentioned, I think that the criticisms themselves are revealing of the some of the philosophic assumptions behind the, the, that animate these critics. And, and it's interesting to ask, so you mentioned what, what shredding of the safety net, the social safety net, what deregulation and so on. If you just dig into that a little bit, the, the story is a little complicated in some of these cases, but it's not that complicated. So if you think about the United States context, in the last 20 years, we've seen George W. Bush increase the prescription drug benefit, which is a massive government investment in what you, I think, is probably understood as a, a welfare program. And then following that, Barack Obama, his signature program domestically was Obamacare, which was a massive government intervention, even bigger than previous ones, into the healthcare system. And that if you if you don't regard that as a growth of government as a as a diminishment of freedom then the question i ask is what would you count as having uh, uh what is the the sort of assumption behind your question so you, what would it look like for society to to have an unshredded safety net if this is what it looks like when so if obamacare is the gutting of the welfare system what do, what do you regard as the ideal? And I think that, I don't think they're willing to say exactly what that looks like, but you can project because if a massive growth is declining in the size of the welfare system, then presumably the only thing that would be satisfactory to, to people who are criticizing our current uh, social system is government controlling it completely and, and there being no freedom uh, and the same, the same goes for deregulation. So let, let's take the sort of the biggest example in the US context. And I think this is partly true in the UK, um, the financial crisis of 2008, 2009. The outco There's a lot of things wrong with the way that uh, played out politically and in terms of who, how the government behaves. It's a, it's a big topic. I don't wanna unpack it completely, but I wanna just point out one significant thing. The outcome of that was not that the financial markets became freer. There is no rational basis for making that claim. In fact, the opposite happened. We got new agencies to regulate consumer finances. We got even greater government involvement. The, the whole attempt to stabilize the financial markets, including uh, what they called trouble assets and, and giving banks relief. There's just literally the government walking into, into financial institutions and telling them what to do day to day for months and, and, and uh, layers upon layers of new regulation. So again, the question there should be, if the critics are saying now in, in the wake of the financial crisis, society is becoming, there's, there's too much freedom, this is controlled by the corporations, that isn't credible. I mean, in fact, it's the opposite that's been happening. Uh, it, it's hard to do business in some of these industries precisely because of just how great the government intervention has, has grown. So the, again, the, the, the implication there is what would it look like to satisfy someone like George Monbiot or, or Naomi Klein or, or David Harvey? What kind of society are they actually trying to push? If this, what they're, they're disparaging as neoliberalism is too free. Uh, so to me, the pattern is completely inverted here. Uh, so 
let's go. So one way to summarize this, so how I've been understanding this, and I'm interested in how you, if this resonates with you, Nico. So I think if we peel away this useless term or this, this destructive term, cognitively destructive term of neoliberalism, put it aside for a minute. What is it we're looking at? We're looking at what I think is aptly described as an economy with significant and growing amounts of government intervention, both in terms of regulating industries, dictating uh, behavior, everything from financial markets to the FDA to you just, everywhere you look, it's, it's, it's growing in that respect and diminishing freedom, which I think you can document. And at the same time that this is happening, um, the, the critics are coming along and saying, it's still too free. And what we need is less freedom. And the problems, everything that you hate about the world, everything that's ruining your life, everything that you think is leading us towards authoritarian leadership, all of that is a result of the, I'm putting words in their mouth, but this is literally, if you translate it into English, it's everything that's wrong is, this, is the result of the diminishing elements of freedom, not the government regulations, not the growing scale of the welfare system, no, that, that's untouchable. We, we need to, pr to protect that and make it bigger. So it's, it's creating a caricature of the actual state of affairs and, dis and attacking those elements that I think legitimately are good elements. So it's allowing people to live according to their judgment and, and do business and trade and so forth. So there's something really not, uh, I think, sincere or, or I'm not sure how to characterize it exactly, but there's something really off about that. So it's criticizing a mixed system and, and trying to hang everything that's wrong on the elements that are, I think, the more virtuous elements in it. Um, so I'm and curious if that resonates with you. And then I want to go back to Thatcher and Reagan, because I think there is something good to say there. But the, the magnitude of the mistake is so big that it becomes questionable whether it's a sincere mistake. And let me give you one example. Uh, Richard Wolff, the Marxist economist, was debating our very own Yaron Brook something like a year ago. And he claimed that uh, the lockdowns and the whole pandemic thing was down to capitalism. And you think, if an educated person makes such a huge blunder, mistake, this mistake cannot be honest. And I see the same thing with the people who see the United Kingdom and they say, this is uh, ruled by, neo by a neoliberalist cult. This is how George Bomeo called it. So you see a country where the NHS, the national healthcare system, is the closest thing that any Western country has to a secular religion. You see a country where the vast majority of education is run by the state. You see a country that more and more infrastructure is now returning to the hands of the state. How can you view this? and say this is neoliberalism. This is, and not only unhinged neoliberalism, you have one of the biggest, quote, nanny states in the world. You have the state intervening in everything from whether you are able to smoke at a pub or whether you are able to drink your coffee from a plastic straw. And with all these regulations, all these interventions in our economic and personal life, how can you see this and say, oh, this is a result of uh, unhinged uh, economic liberty. So either you have, either you need to be completely cognitive, you, in a cognitive confusion, or you're consciously, intellectually gaslighting people. People see something in front of their eyes, 
and you tell them that it's the exact opposite, in which case you are dishonest. And it's okay to, I, I wouldn't care that these people are dishonest, but I do care because when I enter a university library, I see whole selves with the works of Harvey and with the works of Naomi Klein. And uh, George Monbiot is considered a very respectable commentator. So this should also be a lesson to some people in the wider freedom movement who say, oh no, we are neoliberals. We will reappropriate the term. This is not a term to be reappropriated because it is a term that is used as a smear and is, a, and is used this consciously, dishonestly. As you said, there are other confusing terms. For example, libertarianism. It's a bit too vague, but it, it addresses something. There are people who consider themselves libertarians. There is a phenomenon there. Whereas with neoliberalism, this is not the case. So, but you mentioned that uh, you want to talk also about Thatcher and Reagan. So what about them? Yeah. So there's something interesting that did happen in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, maybe even further into that period. So the milestones I'm thinking of is the, uh, the one I know better is, is Margaret Thatcher and, and Tony Blair, the, the two leaders in uh, 80s and, and early 90s, mid 90s. And what, part of what I think is interesting there is that there was a shift, uh, but it's a small shift between within the mixed economy framework towards shrinking the government a tiny bit and not, I wouldn't say it was massive, but it was, it was a shock in the sense that, I mean, to, to give you a concrete example, when I was growing up in the UK, the, one of the signature uh, policies of the Thatcher government was to privatize industries that had been previously nationalized. So if you think about the Britain's socialist history, they just, the government just basically nationalized a whole bunch of industries, mainly big ones like coal and gas and things like that, and electricity and telecom. Like if you landed in the UK in the early 80s, it was practically the government running everything. There's a few businesses. It was, it was highly, highly socialized. And so she came along and said, well, let's sell off the telecom industry, the telecom company and make it private and everyone can buy a share. And, and so this whole concept of the citizens being able to invest in companies and, and these companies be moving from government control to, to private. Now, this is not to endorse the whole approach that they took or even uh, uh, the, the details of it, but the, the whole idea is good. Like get, turn these companies into actual market phenomena rather than controlled by the state. And and I don't think it, I don't think the the vision was fully realized. So they did a number of industries. So I mentioned telecom. I think gas was another one. Electricity was another one. But they didn't get as far as I think they would have wanted to. And then you see other industries like the rails uh, railroads becoming privatized later. So I think that took another decade or two. I forget exactly the details of that. And I think that, I'll come back to that in a minute. But but part of what's interesting in that is. I, I think that's a good idea. It was, I think it helped the society, the economy, it helped uh, liberate uh, England somewhat. But what's interesting is the reaction to it. And I think it's, it's very much in keeping with the kind of thing we're seeing from the critics of quote unquote neoliberalism, which is people were scandalized and they still have, she's one of the most hated politicians since uh, being in power. And it's precisely because she took away our industries. She took. She she um, she sold off our treasured national institutions, and it's it's so. Part of what was interesting is that this deeply held collectivism, uh, 
deeply held commitment to state control, so statism, and the morality behind both of those, which is altruism. Like, why should anybody be profiting from the gas company, from the electric company, from the telecom company? I remember, I think my brother was old enough to he bought shares in British Telecom at the time. It was such a big deal. And, and some people were excited and it, it, it very quickly vanished and, and there was a backlash to it. So the, part of what happened is there was something good in this slight shift towards greater freedom. And, the, but, but again, the, the, and there was a certain spirit to it as well, a certain excitement that, wait, this could be, this, the economy could look different than it does. Wow, that's interesting. I wonder what happened. And, and I don't think this is exactly a, a causal relationship, but, but what happens subsequently is you see in the 80s and 90s and, and through the 2000s is trade becoming more global than it was previously. And the, the ability for trade to, to cross borders and a lot of good things happened in that vein. And I think this is part of what agitates the critics that we're talking about. This to them is we're losing. And in my view is all that happened is they moved the dial from five to four and a half. It was not, I mean, we got slightly less government and, and everyone's freaking out. But the, the other thing that I think is interesting, and maybe we should have a different conversation about this. So I'm curious if you remember or if you read about the shift with within the British Labour Party, because I think it, the, the one thing that is a little credible, somewhat credible in the critics is that they include someone like Tony Blair, who was the Labour Party leader in the UK through the 90s onward. They include him as a neoliberal. And in that respect, I think that is true in this, if neoliberal just means a mixed economy, because it was in the run-up to Tony Blair coming in, what the Labour Party did is they stripped out one of the clauses of their manifesto, which was treasured. Clause and that four. Was the, yeah, clause four. And this was the explicit socialist commitment to state ownership of major industries, which is sort of, in effect, it's saying, yeah, we, we don't want to stand on that. Maybe we'll nationalize something, but we're not committed to doing that. And that was a watershed moment. In that respect, there was a, a similarity between what, Tony Blair was about to what the conservatives. Are. So there's a sort of convergence around the mixed economy as opposed to we're going to be hardcore socialists uh, of the, the type that you're used to. So something interesting happened there, but it's way, way overstated by the critics as look at what happened. They completely liberated. It was, a, it was everything ran, uh, ran amok because they created a, a capitalist society. I mean, that is crazy, but there is a reality that's worth understanding uh, about that. And, and let me hand it back to you, because I, I think there's other things that are interesting here, but I want to hear your reactions to that. So the question is, first of all, why did Thatcher do all these things? I guess he was an ideologue in a good way, but people forget that before Thatcher, the United Kingdom was the Greece of Europe, was the problematic economy, was the economy where all the time there were strikes, ratios, and most importantly, a huge deficit. Why did Margaret Thatcher close the coal mines because they were costing the British taxpayer a ridiculous amount of time of money every day. And then let's go to the other question. Why did Tony Blair did not overturn this policy, which is the beef that many leftists have with Blair? The answer is very simple, because these policies worked. Tony Blair comes to power in 97. These are glory days for the UK. The economy is, boost, is, is, is back in track. After three terms of Thatcher and one term of uh, John Major, because Thatcher was too much for the Tory party, they 
some point they had to get rid of the of her because that's the kind of party they are. So then Tony Blair comes along, and of course he keeps these policies because the country is an upward trajectory, and he rides this wave, he rides this dynamic, and this is why many people remember the Blair years as the cool years you know, with the Spice Girls, the Premier League, the football becoming a big inner and all that stuff. So this economic boom is entirely based on Thatcher's reforms. So obviously Tony Blair would not change it. And what do these people expect from Blair? Should he again nationalize uh, the trains? Should he again nationalize, uh, national, uh, bring back the coal industry? And notice what are the premises of the people who criticize Thatcher? They make, they have two main, two main uh, accusations against Thatcher and against neoliberalism. Number one, it destroyed the coal miners' communities. So what did these people expect? That these people should be coal miners eternally? This is the life they, they, they viewed for them, to be coal miners for the rest of history. But there's something even worse. One of the, quote, neoliberal reforms that Margaret Thatcher did was to allow people to buy social housing. So if the state gave you a house, you're a poor person, and the state gave you a house, at some point, Thatcher says, you can buy this house and we're going to help you buy this house. And the people who bought this house now were suddenly homeowners. I was lodging in a couple in Canterbury and they bought this house through this scheme by Margaret Thatcher. And that's why when she died, they told me, look, we're not very ideological, but we loved Mrs. Thatcher because now we have a house. For, for the left, this is quote, uh, bad neoliberal policy. So not only we should ask the question, so what are the policies then that they would like to see, but also how do they view individuals? How do they view people and their prospects of achieving in life? Why do they care so much that suddenly many people became uh, uh, financiers in the city of London? Could it be, and I don't want to psychologize, but could it be that they want people to be more dependent on the state? So, of course, Tony Blair did not overturn these major reforms. Of course, now we see them slowly, slowly, slowly being overturned. We see, for example, more and more railways returning back to the state. We see the state having a bigger uh, control on energy infrastructure, which is another reason why calling the UK a, a neoliberal bastion is uh, laughable. Yeah, and I, it was interesting to think about the, the U.S. context as well, and, and to think of this society as going to great, more towards freedom. I mean, the signature policy of the Biden administration is massive government investment infrastructure, and and we're we're seeing that, and the this is what um, people are reacting. So I think there's an interesting point here about the way moral ideas shape people's ability to understand things and there's there's a way in which part of this is a point I, I i take from ayn rand in her analysis of how intellectuals through the 19th century and and on the extent to which they accepted altruism the, the idea that sacrifices the, the core of what is a good life and, and moral the extent that they accepted some form of that it made it hard for them to understand the achievements of the industrial revolution and the, the, the growth of the economy and prosperity. They couldn't understand it and they rebelled against it because to them, this was the wrong direction. 
why are people doing things like this that help their lives get better? Why are people uh, improving their lot in life? So to your example of the two homeowners in the UK that you, you knew, this is something that, well, why is this a good thing? No, they should be, as, as you're suggesting, that they, their proper relationship should be dependence. They should be, this is the opposite direction from what they need to be. So, so there's a way in which if altruism is your basic framework, looking at the world, this is, I think, part of what explains, to the extent people are, are trying to understand what's going on, if they see anything that looks remotely like moving away from full government control or everything, then that's a crisis. That's a problem. And I think there's more dishonesty involved in there in some of these intellectuals. But to me, that's part of what explains the rabid reaction to it and why it, 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 it has some sort of credibility in the minds of other people because they share this context. They share this idea that, well, why are all these people getting wealthy? Why is the, what, what, what about all the people left behind? Look at all these people who are suffering as a result of this. So I just want to, and, and that's an interesting thing. Thing. I'm sorry, you yeah. said it has credibility. The constitution, let's say, of the conservative party in Greece, of the, the equivalent of the Christian Democrats in Greece, they had in their constitution that we are not a neoliberal party. So this criticism has been absorbed also by the so-called right or conservative or however you want to call it. So they go, they go out of their way to say, no, 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 we are not neoliberals. Please don't mistake us for these, for these guys. So this straw manning and this boogeyman has actually worked. It's a very, very successful boogeyman. And as you said, it has worked also because it addresses this moral point. And the question is, why most people, when they want to oppose this boogeyman, they only bring the economic argument, which says, oh, of course, we could not operate uh, coal mines on loss for, for decades, which is what was happening in the UK. And they all, but only with the economic argument, you cannot understand why the left has been so successful in demonizing neoliberalism. You have to understand that the argument against neoliberalism is based on a moral argument, which says that Freedom is not an existential need, but it's something which is problematic. And you going after your self-interest and going and pursuing your own happiness is something which is problematic. And as you said, what a better example than the fact that people in the UK getting their own house is viewed as one of the worst legacies of Margaret Thatcher's uh, administrations. So there's one other point I want to bring up that we haven't really explored. And so... It's not the it, my my view is not that there's a really credible position here by the critics. I think that they're able to to get people's attention and people swallow it for reasons that we've talked about. But I think there is something that so nothing that we've said is to suggest that neoliberalism is something to defend. Quite the opposite. We're, it's a useless term. It's worse than useless. And what it's pointing toward, what I think is an it's an attempt to point to as a system that's highly corrupt. It, it's not anything to defend. But I think part of what is important to draw out is that there are problems, significant and moral problems that arise in a system that is a, an unstable mixture of government controls and a welfare state and pockets of freedom. Because, and I would say, this is really powerfully illustrated in Atlas Shrugged and in, in, in many, many of Ayn Rand's essays where she analyzes the, the 
so many of the problems of what she characterizes as a mixed economy. And I just want to pick out a couple because we they've been really big in the last decade or two. So our colleagues, uh, Yaron Brook and Don Watkins wrote a book called Equal is Unfair. And what that book is pointing to is this narrative that emerged in the last couple of decades. It's not new, but it just got, got much more prominent where practically every problem you hear about is it's, it's a kind of inequality. It's income inequality, it's social inequality. And now we're seeing sort of social versions of this, which are racial inequality, but inequality has become a kind of narrative. So equality is the gold standard. We're failing from, to meet that. And here is all the evidence of inequality economically. And, and is, there's a lot of uh, uh, scholarship around what inequality looks like in the economic realm. And go read that book if you're interested in the full analysis of what that phenomenon is. But what part of what's going on in that debate is that there are real problems that hold people back as a result, and real injustices that hold people back in a mixed economy. And actual, um, uh, there's reason to think from a certain perspective that that system is rigged to the benefit of people who don't deserve it. And in that sense, there's a way in which you can make, a, you can create a story that points to certain businesses that have political influence and who buy political influence and who thereby shield themselves from uh, uh, being uh, controlled or that they use the government to, to go after their, their competitors because this is part of what the government's intervention makes possible. It's that the idea that you can buy influence and cripple your competitors or in, in, and put yourself in a position that you wouldn't otherwise gain if it's just left to the market to decide and people's choices to who's going to survive and who isn't. So if you think about part of what is weird about the financial crisis is which banks were bailed out and which ones were not. I don't understand why, do you? I mean, it's not clear that there's any objective way to, like, can you even make an objective determination about that? I don't, I don't know how you would go about that. And there's the argument that some bankers were closer to the government and so they had better pull and got themselves, but that, I don't know what happened in those dark rooms filled with smoke, do you? But I can believe that that is a factor that explains some of these decisions. Why does GM, General Motors, get bailed out, but other companies don't? And why are they forced into a merger with another company? I think it was, I forget which one is a Chrysler. But, but why them and not others? And those kinds of things are artifacts of the fact that the government is deeply in, in, uh, in involved in the economy and interfering in it. And that creates uh, an opportunity for people to wield pull or political influence on to, to the, and, and to enrich themselves in ways that are unearned. And, and that's a real problem. And it's a profound injustice. And it, it, it kind of brings back the privileges that occur in a court, right? In a, in a royal court, if you think about it in, in history, what is it that, why are you to the right of the king? Why are you in support of the king? Well, he hands you all kinds of things you haven't earned at the expense of people who have created it. So you get lands that other people till and farm and you get to dominate them. It's that kind of um, undeserved benefit that occurs. And this is, this is a big part of what you can see Ayn Rand dramatizing in a society that's collapsing. And this is sort of the, some of the the deformations that occur in Atlas Shrugged. So I think that is a, a real problem. It's the result of government. And, and just one other, and I'll just mention it, we don't have to get into it in detail, but I think one unappreciated or underappreciated problem with the current system 
and it 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 leads to real injustices and racial injustices is the the government's monopoly on education and i know this is like for a lot of people their ears are going to burn when they hear that because it's like how could you possibly think anything otherwise but the reality is that the schools are not just failing they're criminally failing the students there are students who cannot read not just read a grade level they just can't read and then they they're set off into the world and they're really handicapped by that and it's a whole system where there aren't other better options that can easily be uh, pursued. So here you have uh, the system in effect is rigged against certain people who have fewer opportunities as a result of the education that they're forced to send their kids to. And that's something that you should be outraged about. That is a moral injustice. And it's it has certain dimensions, there's certain, certain cities and neighborhoods that are worse in this respect than others. But that is a real problem. It, I'm not going to, that's not neoliberalism. That is a government, that is the, the solution that these people are trying to get us to, to have more of, which is more of this kind of injustice. So, and I, and these aren't, the, what I want to convey is that these don't exhaust the kind of problems that occur under this sort of system. These are just two that you can point to where someone looking at this and can say within a very narrow and not super philosophical context, yeah, there's something really rigged about this system. Now, it, it's, it, that's the wrong conclusion to think that it's the free elements that are causing it to be rigged and rigged is a metaphor, but, but it's in effect, some, certain people are getting advantages that other people are locked out of. And it's because of government force in the economy in various ways. And it, it, it takes a lot to see that. But to me, this is part of why if people are, if their motivation is to fight injustices that they experience or that they see. A lot of things that people see, and they, they they're right to react to it, but the analysis or the framing of it as, oh, it's all you know, the fault of neoliberalism. Let's have more government control. That is in fact telling people, oh yes, you're dying from this poison. Here, take another bottle. The po poison is exactly the term that came to, to mind because when you mix poison with water, it's poison that uh, wins. So here's the formula, and this will be my, my last word so that we start wrapping up. What usually happens is you have the government imposing controls in the market. An example, to give a very practical example, in Greece, at some point, the government came up and said, this market can only, there can only be five TV channels, only TV networks in this market. We, and then the government said, we will do a, a competition among businessmen on who will get these five uh, uh, permits. And of course, then everyone said, oh, look, the government is in bed with these businessmen. Therefore, these businessmen are uh, the ones who are uh, ruling uh, this, uh, this country. But wait a minute. Isn't it that in the first place, the government said, I, I will only give five permission. Why do you need to give only five and not 5,000 permission for TV, for TV networks? So what is happening in this? the mixed economy and the regulation is creating a problem, then this problem, as you said, is creating problems to real people. And then what do we hear? Freedom has been tested and it has failed, which is a line that we also see in Atlas Rhyme. We tried freedom and look what happens in education, or we tried freedom in healthcare and healthcare is very expensive. Hiding the obvious that there is no freedom in healthcare and even more, there's no freedom in education. So this is why we should be very, very vigilant on how this term is used. And we should be shouting from the rooftop that 
This is, again, I will call it an intellectual gaslighting operation. It is trying to make us close our eyes and not see what is in front of us, which is governments throughout the world having more and more control on the economy, on production, and on people's life. And then the leftist intellectuals telling us, and more and more now also the right-wing, quote, dissident intellectuals telling us that all this is because of the market. All right, I think this is a good place to draw a line. And thank you everyone for being with us. We'll tell you, uh, we mentioned a whole a number of uh, articles and, and referenced videos and so forth, but we'll put them in the show notes to make sure we, you guys can find them easily. I uh, want to encourage you if you're watching on some social platform like Facebook or if you're on YouTube now, uh, like and give us a comment, tell us what you think. Uh, subscribe to the channel, click the bell so you get notifications. We would love for you to be with us in, in future occasions. And as I said, if you have comments, you can also send us email, newideal at einran.org. We'd love to hear from you if you have suggestions or comments or questions. We read everything, we try to respond to many things. And often we, we have uh, conversations that are spurred by some of the questions that we get from you. So welcome to, to send us your thoughts. We'll be back next time with another episode of New Ideal Live. Thank you all for being here and if you, uh, I think you're continuing on Clubhouse, right, Nikos? If you have only for half an hour, but okay. if you want to continue the discussion and if you want more fun stories about how neoliberalism is used in academia, join me, join me in Clubhouse. Yeah, so thanks for if you're listening to us on Clubhouse, uh, Nikos will be joining in just a few minutes. And everyone else who, if you're interested, you can uh, grab the uh, Clubhouse app and join us. Uh, on that platform for a bit more conversation. Thanks, Nikos. It was uh, good chatting with you. We'll see you all next time. Thanks. Thanks. Bye-bye. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.